Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, coming to you from our studio in Johannesburg. I'm Michael Apple. The boss, Alec Hogg, is traveling, so I'll be taking over the reins for a couple of days. It's Wednesday, the 26th of January. It's the day after payday, when all your debit orders come through. Happy days. Of course, I'm not alone. Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart are the business team with your headlines and market report from our virtual studios in the Mother City. On today's program, our partner, The Financial Times, brings you the latest on Google and its decision to overhaul tools to track your online behavior. Then, business editor Alec Hogg has a rare sit-down with businessman Jonathan Oppenheimer, where they discuss everything from investing in Africa's future to remembering his late wife, Jennifer. It's a not-to-be-missed interview. Then you'll be hearing my voice in an interview with uh, Dondo Mohojane, the Director General of National Treasury, about the 11.4 billion rand World Bank loan South Africa has just gotten. What's that all about? How do we keep sticky fingers out of the till there? Then Justin, you got stuck into the numbers Looking at the valuation of Indian food delivery giant Swiggy, Process, Nasparis, they're all involved there, right? Process is a very concentrated position in Swiggy, approximately 41%, alongside some other big hitters such as SoftBank in Japan, Mike. Swiggy's valuation has doubled in the last six months, a valuation of $10.7 billion against last July's $5.5 billion. There's a lot of question marks here, Mike. When it comes to Swiggy's listed peers, I'm talking the likes of Zomato, Deliveroo, DoorDash, all over the world in different jurisdictions. They've come off from 30% to 70% of their market value in that same corresponding period. Inflation, interest rates, hikes, these are the same valuation drivers that are used to value a business such as Swiggy and their listed peers that have halved in value. So how has it doubled? I asked the question to Anthony Sedgwick. He's a founder and portfolio manager at ABAX Investments. And it was a simple question. I just see, I saw Swiggy's valuation at 10.7 billion in their new round of funding, double from the July valuation during a period when its high growth peers have dropped by around 50%. It seems strange given that both are subject to the same valuation drivers, and I asked him to explain in an audio. Yeah, it's an entirely valid question that you ask about how to square the, the numbers between Swiggy's valuation in July last year, the capital raises that have taken place, and the substantial decline in values that many of their peers have experienced over the last six-odd months. We don't have enough data in what's been publicly disclosed so far to be able to, um, to work that all out. So hopefully... That will come out and the company will make that public. Uh, perhaps your um, publication of it will help to spur that along. So hopefully we get some more data and we can we can work out the delta between last July and, and where we are currently taking into account capital raises. And then it would be interesting to see what changes uh, may or may not have occurred in the shareholders' thinking around the valuation of Swiggy in the context of what's happened to um, the uh, all of the other major publicly listed companies, which, as you point out, have all declined uh, very substantially. So let's give them a chance. Hopefully they come, they produce that information and we can form an intelligent uh, analysis of, uh, of, of whether there's an appropriate value being placed on Swiggy at the moment. Now for the latest in your news headlines, let's go across to my colleague Nadia Swat. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The Standing Committee on Public Accounts is conducting its own probe into public fund misappropriation allegations against the ANC, which surfaced in a leaked audio recording, even though the matter has already been referred to the public protector. The committee believes that the comments only reflect a part of the discussion that was captured in the clip and that the publicly available portion 
has far-reaching implications. On Tuesday evening, the committee resolved that it was necessary for the committee to conduct its own probe. In the clip, someone who sounds like President Saul Ramaphosa can be heard admitting that he was aware that the party used public funds for party purposes. The person suggested that the funds came from the state security agency. Scoba will first ascertain the authenticity of the recording and whether it was indeed Ramaphosa's voice. In the next few days, it will write to the president and demand a written statement or affidavit on the clip's authenticity. Legal experts warn that the National Prosecuting Authority does not have the capacity to deal with all the PPE corruption cases coming its way, given that it is already struggling with the caseload related to state capture. The Special Investigation Unit has published its final report on COVID-19 PPE corruption, finding that 68% of the government contracts it investigated were irregular. 386 people had been referred to the MPA for prosecution following the investigations. Accountability Now Director Advocate Paul Hoffman says that the MPA lacks capacity, and this is a failing of Parliament, which he says has not been serious about its anti-corruption stance. And Civil Action Group ATA has initiated contempt of court proceedings against roads agency Sonral and its former CEO. ATA won a court order in November 2021 for the roads agency to supply it with information around tolling operations on key routes. However, Sunil has failed to provide these. The agency said it intended on challenging the court order but missed the deadline and the extended deadline to submit papers. Arthur said that Sunil was trying to delay the process but has to date not given any reason for the holdup in the courts to force it into action and said it would pursue the matter to finality. Justin, back to you for the market report. The National Share Index was up at 73,600. In the currency markets, the rand was strong against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 15 cents to the dollar, 20 rand, 47 cents to the pound, and 17 rand, 8 cents to the euro. Gold is stronger at $1,846 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 29,500 rand. Rent crude is trading at a shade below $90 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 570,000 rand. In the price action, Sabanya, MTN, Sassel, all well up today, whilst clicks is well down on an earnings miss late last night. In the financial news, Sabanya Stillwater is facing a potential legal challenge to its decision to cancel its $1 billion acquisition of nickel and copper mines in Brazil. When the deal was announced three months ago, it was the biggest yet in Sabanya's drive to join the stampede for metals that are key to powering electric vehicles and the wider green revolution. Sabanya said on Monday it had terminated the deal after a material geotechnical event at the Santa Rita nickel mine. The severity of the event is disputed by the sellers of the assets, which are held by affiliates of funds advised by Appian Capital Advisory. Appian says a localized fracture at Santa Rita wasn't a material adverse event and occurs in the normal course of open pit operations. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, January 26th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Google is backtracking on its controversial plan to replace advertising cookies, and convenience store chain 7-Eleven is under pressure to split itself up. Plus, if only there were two Mario Draghi's. Italy's prime minister is seen as the top choice as the country's next president, but politicians can't agree on who'd fill his shoes as prime minister. It is unclear whether these same parties who are the most unlikely of bedfellows would ever really be able to line up together behind another individual. DFT's Amy Kasman talks about the Draghi dilemma and what's at stake. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Google has just overhauled a crucial piece of technology it's been developing as part of its plan to replace cookies. Advertising cookies are those small files in your browser that track your online behavior. Advertisers rely on them to make money. To help figure out why Google is making this move, I reached out to our West Coast editor, Richard Waters. Well, ad tech is deeply complex. But I think, you know, the way to think about this is that Google has two fundamental problems. One problem is that 
a lot of publishers and people in the advertising world don't trust them. And Google hasn't been its own uh, best friend here because they have this tendency to cook up clever technical schemes and then drop them on the industry. And then everybody kind of runs away and looks at this and decides that, you know, do we really trust what Google's doing? The other problem, though, is that there is a fundamental uh, tension between privacy and competition. So if Google scraps cookies, the privacy people love the idea. You know, this this should make life more private for you. On the other hand, all the publishers are saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, we're not going to be able to make money anymore. And is Google really doing this just to reinforce their own position? They're going to make a lot of money instead of us. Yeah, Richard, earlier this week, we reported that German publishing trade groups complain to the EU that Google could be breaking the law with this plan to scrap cookies. So are publishers and advertisers now happy with Google's move? I think, you know, we can almost guarantee they won't be. And the reason I say that is that Google is moving further in the direction of privacy with the changes it's making. It's saying we are going to be less granular. We're going to categorize you as a, a as an internet user in a more general sense when we sell your data to advertisers. Um, it's great for privacy, but not so so good for advertising. So how big of a deal do you think this move is, Richard? Well, Google's been working on this plan for two years, more than two years. So to change course at this point is pretty significant. Um, you know, that it, essentially they're saying our solution for protecting privacy hasn't really delivered on what we claimed. Uh, so, you know, it's significant. However, having said that, they're still going ahead on saying they're going to scrap cookies next year. They still say they're going to come up with a system that, you know, they think can can meet all these different interests. So, you know, if they can get it back on track, then maybe it's, you know, in time we'll see it as not that big a deal. Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. Japan is famous for its convenience stores, or konbini as they're called. They're everywhere, and they offer everything from sushi to shipping services. The biggest konbini of them all is 7-Eleven. Many people don't even know it's a Japanese company. I didn't until I read this story. And like many big corporations around the world, frustrated investors want 7-Eleven's parent company, 7&I, to split off some of its businesses. Here's our Tokyo correspondent, Anthony Slodkowski. Shareholders are basically saying that 7&I should essentially split its profitable convenience store brand, 7-Eleven, which is sort of, you know, known around the world, and its other businesses such as supermarkets and sort of other uh, department store businesses and such, which are kind of uh, low performing and, and which have very thin margins. So so what the investors want to see is basically the company to focus on on its growth area and 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 want to you know want to see the rest uh, kind of being sort of uh, spun off or uh, carved out in, in one way or the other. So now three of the company's biggest shareholders, including the U.S. hedge fund Third Point, are considering bringing proposals for restructuring. You know, this is not the first time they're actually dealing with calls for. Um, you know, for for reform, there's this culture of sort of shielding these low performing businesses inside Seven and I. And actually, Third Point backed the the current chief executive who hails from the convenience store uh, segment uh, in the hopes of a, a a kind of a more aggressive turnaround that has not come about in the last five years since the current CEO uh, took over. Anthony Solodkowski is the FT's Tokyo correspondent. Italian lawmakers are voting for a new president. The frontrunner is the country's well-loved and respected prime minister and the former head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi. But when lawmakers cast an initial round of ballots earlier this week, most came back blank. No name on them. Actually, this was by design. It was part of a plan by members of Draghi's national unity government to stall. To help figure out what's going on, I'm joined by our Rome correspondent, Amy Kasman. Hey, Amy. Hi. So what's with the blank ballots? 
So the reason for the blank ballots is that basically the parties that make up Mario Draghi's national unity government haven't really decided on whether he should be elected president or not. And so while these political negotiations are going on behind the scenes, they all cast blank ballots to signal that talks are still ongoing and also to avoid any inadvertent destabilizing political outcome. Now, why haven't they decided on Mario Draghi? Isn't he incredibly popular? So basically, Prime Minister Mario Draghi is, in fact, one of the most respected people in the country. So he would be a very strong candidate as president. The problem is, if the politicians decide to elect Draghi president, they're not sure that they will be able to agree on a successor to serve as prime minister. And as they debate over who should be the prime minister to replace Mario Draghi, that the parties that make up the national unity government might end up falling apart. So, Amy, there's there's no one that these parties can agree on to replace Draghi if he were to become president? Part of the reason that there's so much difficulty finding the next prime minister is that the coalition that is now behind Mario Draghi and the current government is a very, very broad-based, unusual political coalition, which spans... Italy's political right to the political left. But it is unclear whether these same parties who are the most unlikely of bedfellows would ever really be able to line up together behind another who could actually bring them all together. The risk is if they can't agree, they'll be propelled into early elections. And as you wrote in your piece, nobody wants that. They just want to hang on to their seats as long as they can. Uh, Now, another thing at risk here is billions of euros in COVID recovery funds from the EU. And Italy desperately needs them as part of its plan to reboot its economy. Italy is due to receive 200 billion euro of this money through grants and loans. But in order to receive that money, it must meet a very ambitious schedule of reforms But the dispersal of the EU funds will only happen if Italy keeps to this very ambitious and some would say challenging time schedule. So the government really needs to keep on track. It's due to receive another 40 billion euro for reforms completed in 2022. If they get derailed or they lose reform momentum because of politicking or the collapse of the government or early elections, then that money won't come as it is supposed to. Amy Kasman is the FT's Rome correspondent. Before we go, we bring you the smooth sound of steady returns. Investors have not been even a little slow to buy up music copyrights. They're spending billions since music copyrights are seen as a stable asset. In the latest deal, private equity firm Apollo Global Management led the purchase of Luis Fonzi's songbook. He is, of course, the artist behind this song, the smash hit. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Jonathan Oppenheimer, it's really good to have you in our brand new studio. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. A a heartwarming subject, Uh, not for your family. You lost your wife nearly five years ago. Yep, coming up. Uh, and Jennifer was well-known throughout uh, NGOs in South Africa, maybe not really to the broader society. She wasn't really that high-profile, but an American, Harvard-educated. Well, I'll boast on her behalf, Harvard and then Harvard Law School, and a Fulbright scholar in between, also spoke Chinese. And how did you get to snag her? <laughs> I went questing, and I was incredibly lucky. I, 
I met her when she was at law school and she literally blew my socks off. And as, as her father said to me a few years after we got married, I spent 10 years paying for my daughter to learn and write, uh, to speak and write Chinese to go and live in Africa. <laughs> and that was a passion of hers, certainly from everything I've read. Yes, uh, she, uh, I mean, she was a, an incredible historian, an incredible, uh, an incredible, I think the best way to describe her is she was insatiably curious about everything. And uh, if you want to succeed in anything in life, you've got to be curious. And so she, she really threw herself heart, body, and soul into being in Africa and, and became an African. I was, I was thinking about it, and it was, I, was, I was with uh, a number of uh, people who I'd consider friends from the ANC, and uh, we were at a dinner, and they kept on insisting on calling her comrade and me capitalist. So <laughs> I think she won and I lost. <laughs> When she passed away, it, as I say, almost five years ago, you naturally, in a case like this, would like to commemorate her life. And you, you started something which is really interesting. Now, maybe it's called the Jennifer Ward Oppenheimer Research Grant. Yeah. Why this? So uh, our Gen- Jennifer's life really uh, could be cl- sort of classified into a series of chapters. And her first chapter was an incredibly strong academic at school. Her second chapter was uh, this, this extraordinary passion, particularly around Asia and learning to write and speak Chinese, superly well-educated, as I said. She was, I mean, interestingly, for those from, from years, years back, she was, uh, she'd won a Fulbright scholarship to mainland China. And uh, it was announced uh, a week after Tiananmen Square. So she didn't go to mainland China. She ended up going to Hong Kong. But that was, that was her passion, that was her focus. Uh, then we met, uh, she fell in love with, with me, I hope, and we had this most extraordinary journey together. Came to Zimbabwe in the, in the mid-90s, spent four years in Zimbabwe, came down to here in 99. And there was, again, a wonderfully silly anecdotal story. She was always a little bit concerned about crime in South Africa. I think a lot of us are. And she said to me, early doors, you know, I, I love Zimbabwe, it's brilliant, it's a wonderful place, but going down to South Africa before we moved, a little bit dodgy. And so we arrived in 99, and I was looking at various options, and uh, in, in the greater De Beers group, there was an option to go and work in London. So I went back to her, and I said, I've got this opportunity. She said, that's great, you can commute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she truly embraced South Africa as, as home, it she was a South African first, uh, a globalist second, I, I would say, and, and somewhere in between there was Africa as well. And uh, she just really, really embraced everything first and went through what was a really interesting journey. She, so she started by being obsessed around health and education, which I think is where a lot of us focus. And as she began to understand more deeply the challenges that face South Africa, or actually Africa, and then the, the world writ large, uh, the environment became an increasingly big part of her, her focus and her passion. And uh, over the last sort of five years of her life, we had tilted our private sort of philanthropic work more away from education, particularly towards e- ecology and sustainable ecology. And uh, it tied in very nicely with a lot of the work that the family had been doing in terms of the Oppenheimer Research uh, conference which has been going on for years and uh, we we really like to think that we truly trying to understand how you create a sustainable environment it's not just research for the sake of research it's not a pretty paper that's published in science it's it's work that can influence how you make a sustainable ecological system where man can exist and live for generations and that was her passion so when she died, she was just obsessed with this at the end. It seemed absolutely natural that we, we create this, this gift in memory which tried to celebrate the best scientists in this ecological space that Africa had to produce. Obsessed because the scale of the challenge? I think obsessed. Uh, if you ever came to dinner at our house, the, the conversation was always about these are the huge challenges we face and, and we see really two enormous challenges and and. Jennifer was really focusing on the ecological one, which is captured in today's language by climate change. But it's so much more than climate change. Climate change is really the symptom of overconsumption of our, our ecology. And uh, there are all sorts of examples that I can pull uh, to, to describe the challenge. And she was 
passionate about really getting good science in that space. Again, this this extraordinarily strong uh, mind that she had said, we have to actually put facts around this. We can't just sit and talk. We actually have to find solutions, and that's what she was about. And good science, I guess, means getting the right people to pay attention to it and investigate it, and hence your support of uh, Africa-focused uh, studies at, at both Cambridge and Harvard? Uh, Cambridge, Harvard, Oxford, um, internationally, but all pointing back to Africa in a really strong way. Uh, huge support here, WITS, UCT, uh, some of the other universities, Stellenbosch increasingly. I mean, there's the, the Oppenheimer Memorial Trust, which uh, supports people. I'm, for my, for my sins and with great pleasure, chairman of that at the moment. It cycles between our side of the family and, and my aunt's side of the family. And uh, the work that the OMT has done is just amazing. And you look at um, our alum of people who've got its ben- benefits from it, and it's, you know, it's, it's the who's who of, of South Africa. And it really it makes you feel proud that you've had input into these people who are leading our country, good and bad, uh, in, into their education, into helping them become the people they are. And uh, she, Jennifer sat on the board of, of the OMT for 17 years. So that, she was instrumental in driving a lot of that. She was instrumental in when we were invested in De Beers and directing the De Beers Fund in how it engaged with the communities in a meaningful way. She took everything she did to, to this incredibly professional, disciplined, but also loving and, and, and heartfelt way. Space. It's an extraordinary story. Your your family has come under the cosh from all kinds of uh, politicians and people with vested interests, and yet you've got this incredible love for Africa. Uh, many others would have long gone, long departed, perhaps uh, focused their attention elsewhere. Where does it come from? I just know your father was the same, and indeed your grandfather uh, also. Is it is it luck in your DNA? <laughs> Maybe the easiest answer would simply be to say it's in the DNA. I think it's a little bit more than that. Uh, if you believe in systems, and I'm a great believer in systems, Jennifer was a great believer in systems, when you contemplate a system, you can see the weak, weak points. And Africa is both the greatest opportunity the world faces and the greatest risk the world faces. And the reality, if you truly want something which is going to have a permanence rather than just a transitory moment in the sun... Uh, you need to make sure that those weaknesses don't become catastrophes and crises. And focusing on Africa and making those those opportunities, whether they are opportunities for disaster or opportunities for success, success is is life fulfilling. And that's what keeps on drawing us back to Africa. Is we can see the opportunities. We need to access them because if we don't, and other people don't, we really are going to cause the other, which is the disaster. And the disaster won't be an African disaster. It'll be a global disaster. You know, when you did the De Beers deal as a family, I spoke uh, through the intervention of your grandmother uh, with your father that evening. And he said, it was on national radio, and he said, we're going to reinvest in Africa. Uh, Has that been the case? Have you really focused your efforts here in, in supporting maybe investment opportunities on the continent, and, and then why? Uh, again, uh, well, I'll, 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 you will have heard it, and, and perhaps some of the listeners will as well, but my great-grandfather in 1954, and I was just looking at the statement this morning, said, we're here to make a profit. This was in the Anglo-American chairman's statement. We're here to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities of southern Africa. At the time, Anglo was predominantly focused on That's way ahead of its time. Well, you think about triple bottom line, it's still, to my mind, the best descriptor of the triple bottom line, but I'm a little biased. It was my great-grandfather, after all. Uh, and as I look at that, and we've adapted that to, to talk in terms of our, our commercial endeavours to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities we touch, uh, to be more expansive, because we aren't exclusively in southern Africa. Uh, and as, as we sit together, I created and. We, we set it up in 2016, so it's now seven years old. Or it's five years old, just just to, in its sixth year. Uh, an investment vehicle based out of um, uh, Jersey, but uh, managed really for, with the, the team who do all this research and everything here in Johannesburg. 
and uh, we've invested over $500 million in the continent. And there aren't that many people who can say that. And that's new money coming back into Africa. It isn't churning existing money. Uh, I was in Nigeria yesterday visiting one of our operations, and these operations aren't us investing and then never visiting. We want to own and operate these businesses alongside the local management. And it was a super exciting day, or two days, just incredible opportunities. Mm. Getting back to the uh, JWO research grant, it's now the third year, uh, 2021 is the third year. How how many people enter it, or or how do you get (laughs) them to... I knew you were going to ask me that, so I had to ask the experts. Um, So we've had over 700 applications over the three years, and and last year uh, we had 254 accepted applications. So we had more applications, some are a little bit like, where's the dustbin, throw them away. Mm -hmm. Uh, But 254 credible applications uh, from across the continent. I think we had 27 countries apply. So that's that's pretty pretty wide-reaching. And what do they send you? What is... But all sorts, but all about the environment. So interestingly, again, 2021 was the year of microplastics. I think this growing awareness of how truly, um, if you have apex predators, you might have apex harmers. Microplastics might be an apex harmer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so huge number of applications. I think over half the applications played with microplastics mostly uh, in the oceans. And um, the, 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 the winner... Dr. Who, Gideon Ardubu. Gideon, I mean, you, you should meet Gideon. He, he, he's, the intensity he brings to, to the space is, is quite scary. I mean, he's, he's obsessed. And obsessed in a wonderful, constructive driven way and the network he's built it's just it's phenomenal and he's looking at microplastics not only in terms of uh, the oceans where we know that they're catastrophic but also in the fresh water systems and then also what they're doing to the human body and uh, i mean some of the stuff he's doing and i'd have to i need to read my notes because i can't remember half the half the names of these things but how it in affects the your gut is just scary. It changes your hormones. Uh, I didn't know that. I don't think you knew that. Uh, and all of a sudden, people who are perfectly healthy no longer fertile or uh, start having all sorts of uh, sort of cancers and, and crazy things. I read Bill Bryson's book called The Body. Yeah, It's a fantastic book. It's, it's thick. Dumbed down for people like me to understand it. And me. But, but every second page it was, well, we don't know what that means, and we don't understand that. So there's so much about yep. the human body that is unknown to, to discover exactly. the impact of, of what you just said with microplastics. Yep. So what exactly does he win? So the, the, the grant is 150000 US dollars, and it can be dispersed in, a, in, in chunks up to a, a period of three years. And so we, ha- we award this grant every year. And right now, so that we've got three recipients. Uh, so the first was, was a wonderful woman. She's becoming something of a celebrity, is Haley Clements. And she was, uh, and her research, her area of focus was on, on biodiversity and biodiversity mapping. Critical if we're going to know what's happening in the environment. I mean, it's, it's up there again in terms of this is, sh- I can't swear, can I? This is bleep that you have to know about. Mm. And she's doing some of the leading work of that in the world, particularly in Africa, which has some of the widest, greatest biodiversity and needs to preserve its biodiversity more than anywhere else. And then the second guy, uh, who was equally amazing, is doing unbelievable work on malaria. And a crazy, crazy intervention in terms of malaria, because what he's done is he's figured out that light and particularly the frequency of light, mm-hmm. affects whether Anopheles mosquito is attracted to something. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all knew moths are attracted to a light. But did you know that Anopheles is not as attracted to yellow light? So change the light bulbs in the houses of Africa, and you change the attractiveness of the house to Anopheles mosquitoes, and you could, we don't know yet, 
dramatically reduce the propagation of, of malaria across the continent. Not by, I mean, I love the work that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are doing on, on, on vaccines and malaria vaccines, and it's, it's groundbreaking, and they're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at it, and it's brilliant. But just change a light bulb. Really? And we can have an effect which is even greater than maybe the efficacy of the, of the malaria vaccine. So that $150,000 research grant is to help them complete Focus a, on, a research program okay. that they have basically um, pitched for. That's what, that's what the applications are, are pitches for that $150,000. So they don't have to go and do any other work. They know that they're going to they're be able to focus on their, on their obsession. Yeah. And the consequence thereof could be, as you say, changing light bulbs in malaria-affected areas, uh, as simple as that, but making a, a very big difference. And it's crazy. I mean, wow is what I end up saying. Do you think Jennifer would have been bucked by uh, what's happened in her name? Yeah. I think she'd be incredibly proud. I mean, we, we were tilting towards this already. And, and I, I suspect if we'd said, let's do this, she wouldn't have wanted to call it under her name because she was always, for a, as, you, as you started describing, hiding her light under a bushel. But she would have been passionate about the project and passionate about the work that's been done. Do you think that her passing changed you into becoming more focused in this area? Because we, we've met over the years, and you were very involved in business. It was, yeah. it was a lot, I won't say all business, but I'm sure a, a, a bigger chunk of your life. Have you had to change a little in that way? It's a, it's a very good question. No. Uh, so here, a shout-out to my mother. Alan Savory is a Zimbabwean vet, uh, who, was, uh, who developed a farming method which used what is called biomimicry, which is where you look at what nature did and then you try and mimic it in a, in a commercial fashion and it produces all sorts of good things. And the idea of, of Alan Savory's method is you create bigger herds of cattle. Mm. They then act like the bulk grazers of the, the past. You herd them in a tight bunch. That was the predator's. The effect of that is they break the soil, so the water retention goes up. They defecate on the soil. That improves its nutrition. You get a much better diversity of of grass that grows, which improves the nutritional yield, which makes the cattle health healthier. It's a it's a wonderful virtuous circle. My mother was championing Alan's methods before Alan knew, mm. and up in Zimbabwe, where the the families had a cattle ranch for many years, we're experimenting with this now, and we're really getting some pretty exciting results. That has been at the forefront of what the family was about for you know, 30, 40 years, longer. The family were lucky enough to, I uh, don't want to call it full, have the opportunity to take on the custodianship of Swalu, this big nature reserve in, in the Northern Cape. And uh, the work that we've been doing at Swalu, again, somewhat hidden in terms of real meaningful work that can help manage ecological environments is truly groundbreaking. We've got a research... The family have a research facility at Swalu. We have a research facility uh, just out near um, uh, uh, out just beyond Bronkelspreit out here on, on a farm we have. We have a research facility at Changani in Zimbabwe. We have a research facility in the, in the foothills of the Drakensberg in, in KZN. Um, these places, which uh, Duncan McFadden, who, who looks after these things for us, Overseas and, and allocates money to are all and have all been doing huge work in the conservation space for 10, 15 years. And the Oppenheimer Research Conference has been going for, I'll get it wrong, more than 10 years. That way I'll get it right. Uh, so, no, this isn't, this isn't new. I, I, think what we're, I think what Jennifer Dine did for me is it pushed me to be more vocal about it, more public about it. For, I always felt that as a family, we wanted to have the proof points before we talked about something. So I wanted to be able to say, hey, we have a sustainable business here. We're creating lots of employment. Mimic us, and you can do the same. Uh, we've got all these great ideas. We'll share them with you, but we don't want to share them when they're just concepts on a wall. We want to share them when they're practical, lived experiences, and we can go and show you those experiences. And a, co a convert. A convergence of, of Jennifer dying and the fact that our research is, is, is more substantive now, it is there, has allowed us to be much more vocal about it. And are they? Are people following you? 
I don't know is the answer. Most probably not nearly as much as I would like. Um, you know, I, th I think uh, taking a generational view is, is an outlying view in, this, in the 21st century. It seems that you know, most millennials and Z, generation Zs or Zs or whatever you call them are, are what, super interested in what happens next week, not what happens in 10 years' time. Although there does seem to be a growing awareness of that. Certainly when I talk to, to people when I, I'm abroad, I get the strong idea that, that there is a community that's growing rapidly that are saying, hang on, we really do need to think about not tomorrow, not next month, next year, but next decade, next century. And that's, that's really exciting because it feels like we're swimming with the tide rather than against the tide. And so, there's so many estimates on the arable land in Africa that's being properly utilized or utilized at all. From what your research is showing you and from what we've been discussing today, isn't that a great opportunity to maybe be the, the real breadbasket of good food for the, for the world? Of course, but, and, but there is a big but. And the big but is the real experience of big commercial agriculture in the West and in South America is throwing up some really bad data right now. You know, big monocrops, you know, the, the wheat belt, the, 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 the grain belt of America and what's happening with, with huge monocrops and the desperate use of fertilizer and, and, and is again encouraging people to hark back to trying to find biomimicry tools. I'm not in any way saying we have to go back to oxen and, and plowshares. That, that's stupid. But if you think about mixed systems which are synergistic and, and supportive of one another, those endeavors are so much more powerful, so much more resilient. And I think resilience is the key thing in this, in this changing world that we're in. And, and yes, we can begin to do that. But critically, it can't just be around agriculture or, or wilderness preservation. It needs to be integrated into the well-being of people. Because if you don't have people who have constant to improving well-being, they don't want to play in the game. I mean, again, at the office, we often talk about in a world where people's well-being is improving, they follow the rules because the rules are benefiting them. If you, if you wake up in the morning and you are rules-abiding and at the end of the day you're richer than you were at the beginning of the day, you're going to continue to follow the rules. If you wake up in the morning and you're poor at the end of the day, why do you follow the rules? And when you believe that's systemic, what incentive do you have to pay, obey any rule? And that's what we see as, as a global trend is where people's income, particularly in the urban areas, is declining. The propensity to social unrest is growing. The propensity to, to collapse in the rule of law is growing. And the direct opposite is also true, where we see wellness, disposable income in the urban areas growing. We see people being more law-abiding and more supportive of, of the, the regime they're in. I know where I want to be. I want to be over here. But I also want to be over here in a way that ensures that we've got an eco ecology and an ecosystem that's going to be here a thousand years from now. Right now, globally, millennials and Zs, they've got to, on on blended basis, have got declining disposable income. So we're we're failing on this side of the equation. Over here, on the ecology, the world is now saying, all our scientists are saying, we're overconsuming the world. It's it's not able to recover at the rate at which we're consuming. So we've got a simultaneous equation, and both sides of the simultaneous equation fail. We have to get ourselves into a place where both sides of that simultaneous equation solve. Well-being needs to be growing, and we need to consume the environment less. How do you do that? And that's the challenge. If we can find a way to do that, if we can cause investment to flow to renewable technology, to new energy sources, to, to the creation of ecologically sustainable goods and services for people, that's exciting. And yet... What is happening is globally, actually less and less money is going to innovation, to transformation, to greening the economy, and more and more money is just going to transactional activities that are zooming around in the stock markets. 
that's a that's a bad equation for me. It doesn't solve. And so part of the challenge is you've got to have the science to know what how to consume the world in a sustainable way. And we need to find ways to create additional goods and services for this huge population, particularly in Africa, come back to why Africa is so important, who have to be improving their well-being. And it's not by saying, oh, there, there, you guys can actually have less because everybody has to have less. It doesn't work like that. Most of these guys are on the $2 a day. They can't afford to have less. They have less, they die. And dying isn't an option. It's a, it's a complex and a fascinating area, but I guess to... To start with, you need to understand and know, and hence the the education and hence the science. Jonathan, good talking with you. Before we finish, though, your your aunt's been doing interesting things here in South Africa. I'm talking about Mary Slack uh, with rescuing horse racing. Uh, is that's something that you, your branch of the family, is not ever really been interested (laughs) in? I can't remember who it was, but somebody said anything that eats while you sleep, don't invest it. But I am. In, I invest in cattle lately. But uh, no, I. I mean, she's. She really loves that side of those, those sorts of things, and I, it's so exciting to you know, anything that keeps industry going and supports. I, I'm grateful for and uh, you know, Mary and, and 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 her daughters have done amazing stuff and continue to do amazing stuff. And I, I now look at them sort of as a as a wonderfully interested third party observer. Maybe a little bit closer than third party, but it's but it's a it's a really nice it's a really nice thing to to see them shaping their their world and doing their own thing. And it's all long term. And I, again, I get back to this thing maybe as a final point that that you are thinking long term, and yet there are so many South Africans who can't see beyond next year or the year thereafter, and hence are packing for Perth or London or wherever else it might be. All they're doing is they're, they're winning themselves another 10 to 20 years. If we don't fix Africa, the rest of the world will be doomed too. Welcome to this discussion with Dondo Mohajane, the Director General of National Treasury. DG, thanks for chatting to me. Last week, your department announced an 11.4 billion rand loan in conjunction with the World Bank. Money is never free. What are the T's and C's that apply here? It's never free. You're right. Good afternoon. No, it's never free. I mean, the the, the biggest T is that, and the, and the crossing the I is that it's not free. Thirteen years repayment, three years grace, uh, you know, period, and then we we have to repay this loan. It is, I can say, Michael, very cheap compared to what we would have gotten in the market. Uh, we're looking three, four hundred basis points less than what we would have gotten from the market with such a long term loan. No conditions. Must put it like that, no conditions at all. What is there is that there are prior actions, and we chose to call them that in the, the way this development policy loans are structured. These are prior actions that we have, um, you know, up to now implemented as South Africa. Things that we committed ourselves to, call them structural program, reform program that we've been embarking on for some time now. The interventions that we made after COVID-19 hits, the interventions we are making to stabilize our macroeconomic framework, Etc. So all of the things that we would have said at the time of the budget, at the time of the MTBPS, they are happy with that. They are happy with the stance that says we are on journey, we are en route to uh, proper macroeconomic management, proper growth strategies in place. So they were happy to grant us this long-term loan. The World Bank says that South Africa is facing the worst economic crisis in close to a century, 90 years. I assume that we're going to need a lot more than $750 million to get us back on track. Any idea what the sort of funding needs are of the country in the, the short to medium term? Look, we are running, as you know, an 80, 85 plus percent debt to GDP ratio. Uh, we are running a deficit, a huge deficit, $360 billion in one year. Um, we need money. We need the economy to function. We need tax revenues to come through. But unfortunately, as you know, the economy is not performing full steam, meaning we are going to rely in the short to medium term on on, on financing, whether through loan financing. We've been going to market, which is something that we've been doing for some time. It's only now recently, in the last year or so, that we started looking at multilateral development banks. We went to the IMF last year, went to... The NDB, we're now going to the World Bank. These are cheap loans and it's good because we are members anyway there. We pay subscriptions. So 
It's just the money coming back in a different form back to us, what we've been paying over the years. So we are going to need them. There are concerns around the indebtedness of, of South Africa. Around 2008, we were sitting at a debt of about 230 billion rand. It's grown significantly, as you've mentioned. Can we afford taking on this sort of debt, DG? We can't afford, but at least the market, we're still the, we're not the darling of the market as we're used to before. We are borrowing at very high rates, so we can't, I can't say we, we are the market, darling of the markets. But the reality is that we need, we will continue, so long as uh, the economy is not uh, blasting at all cylinders, we will, need, we will need to borrow. We have to do it in a sustainable way. We have to ensure that we approach this very carefully. We have to be more careful on the expenditure side. We cannot take on more debt that's just for consumption. We have to continue looking for debt that's going to produce, I mean, be, you, know, you know, produce for the economy, you know, to boost productive sectors of the economy. That's one something that we should continue doing. But the reality of the situation is that we took on more, we expanded our social, you know, you know programs, we, uh, social wages among the highest, if you think about 62%, of our total budget goes towards social wage, meaning the provision of health services, education services, uh, roads, budgets, etc. So we are doing quite well in terms of addressing the South Africa's challenges. But if the economy is not uh, firing in all cylinders, we will then have to be going to market and borrow more, including going to the MDBs like the World Bank. Is Treasury in any way concerned, as I'm sure many South Africans are, about the way that this money is going to be spent, you know, is it really going to be spent on the poor, on <clears throat> on fixing the healthcare system, uh, towards proper economic reform, or is it going to be squandered? Do you have these sorts of concerns as well, DG? Considering the SIU report that came out this morning, over sixty percent of PPE spending uh, contracts were irregular. Uh, do you have concerns about how this money is going to be spent? I'm concerned. I'm still reading, by the way, the 783-page doc- document that we got this morning. Uh, I just started. So the reality is that, look, we, we, have, we have a challenge. Uh, we, we, we have a challenge. We cannot be eyes and ears everywhere or, you know, all the time. But we've got systems in place, and it all has to do with us, accounting officers of departments, like people like myself, uh, DGs, and heads of departments in, in, in provinces, in municipalities. What do we do? How do we ensure that we spend in terms of applicable laws, applicable rules and regulations? And how do we encourage or even enforce, ensure that our supply chain management colleagues are, you know, function you know, in a way that is above board? All of these are remain challenges. I'm concerned uh, that, you know, whatever, not only the World Bank money or the $750 million dollars, I'm concerned the 1.4 trillion that we that we we vote every year, if it's used accordingly and properly, we have to be worried. The AG reports suggest that uh, you know an author uh, irregular expenditure increases all the time. We know the challenges municipalities everywhere in national departments, provincial departments. I think it's up to us to to just make make a turn, make a turn. If I have to take some biblical uh, sort of analogy. Uh, be a be be a Paul and stop being a Saul. And when Paul was on Saul was on his way to Damascus, he changed ways and said, "Let's do things differently." We have to do that as a state in South Africa and say, "Do we is this is this the future that we want to create for our children's children?" I don't think so. So I think it's up to us as public officials, the integrity that we have to display, the honesty that we have to display in the way we perform our functions. That's on one end challenge. Secondly, we have to strengthen uh, public, uh, you know, oversight bodies and, and, and whether, whether we parliamentary committees, or portfolio committees in parliament or in provincial legislatures, oversight committees, municipal councils, including boards and public entities and state-owned companies. We cannot look the other way. I think it's high time now that we don't want to indebt future generations like we're doing now, where money is just being squandered. I'm where I'm seated as treasury. We, we continuously look at our role, what the PFMA, the MFMA, including the constitution, bestows on us, playing an oversight role. We have to be good at what we're doing. And that's why I'm encouraging my staff all the time that let's keep on uh, you know, improving our systems of oversight. Let's keep on ensuring that 
and encouraging departments to do the right thing. And we can only do that. But at the end, criminality, if it increases, law enforcement agencies must come in and deal with that. And we hope if there's any wrongdoing anywhere, the law enforcement agencies should come in, Michael, and come in strong, at least based on what we pick up, where people willfully committed uh, wrong and, and, and stole from the state. The budget shortfalls that we're, we're seeing and, and the money that we required, a lot of it is, is outside of our control. It's, it's COVID-19 related, uh, which has hampered the economy, not just ours. It's not unique to South Africa. But something like the 50 billion rand July riots last year, uh, the, the devastation to KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, the devastation of parliament, the fire there, the fire at Waterkloof Air Force Base as another example. We're not metaphorically, you know, on fire. We're quite literally on fire some days. It just seems that so much of the the expenditure in South Africa is as a result of own goals. Give me some good news to cling to here, DG. What, what, what is going right? Tell me that. Look, there are things going right. We've got a body of public servants who are committed to doing this thing. We are not a collapsed state. We are not, we are not, we're still a capable state. We're still a state that is not about to, 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 to fail. We're not a fa- we're not a failed state. Institutions of democracy are still strong. The courts, the reserve bank, the treasury, some, you know, we, we're still in tech. They, they, we are there to ensure that we defend what's left uh, and to defend and to reinculcate a culture of ownership, of really making sure that this country is ours. So we, we still have that. So uh, you know you've got uh, you know so you've got that I interact with a whole lot of co- colleagues in public service who are committed, uh, and and I think we should not lose that and say we are all the same painted with the same brush in the in the state. We're trying all means. So you've got you still have that. Secondly, you 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 have you have a, a, some conscience left uh, is still left in, in 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 many in many institutions in South Africa in ensuring that. The right thing is done. I've, I've interacted with a whole lot of countries around the world and, and my counterparts where most, some have lost hope in their own countries and in the way they, they oversee the public finances of their own countries. But we are not there. We, 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 still are, we still are a capable state. We have challenges like any other. 1994, today, we, we, look, we, we are only uh, still young. You know, we are not teenagers but I think we have to continue to strengthen the capacity of the state uh, because, uh, you know, as you know, many, many experienced bureaucrats left the service um, in the mid-90s. We had to rebuild. We had to rebuild a new culture to be developed. Countries like in Europe and in America, North America, those democracies are old, three, four hundred years old, including some, you know, some in the East. So I think we, let's not be too hard on ourselves. As much as we don't cannot agree wrongdoing, we're still a young democracy. Our systems are in place. Parliament is functioning. The courts are functioning. There's, there's, a, there's a vibrant uh, you know, uh, you know, a system of, of oversight, the public protector office, the challenge that they may have, but it's there. At least there's a sense that if I go to the courts, I will get justice. If I, if I, if I go and complain, I'll get justice. But it is more the efficiency of those institutions, the police. If you go and report a case, someone must follow through. Someone must take you serious with respect and integrity. They're still, our political system is strong. The ministers are there. The president is there. There's no collapse. At least there is that. Cabinet meets. Cabinet meets every week. Cabinet committees meet and so on and so on. Parliament sits. We are held recently. Even, you know, we, we are going to court a parliament tomorrow. It shows that democracy is alive. The EFF wrote to us about this loan, and we have to go and explain ourselves. They'll ask us questions I can imagine. What are the conditions? We want to see them. We will be open. We will be open and honest and say we went because of this. There's no secrecy. So there's still a sense of a state in, in, in action and a state at play. And that's what we should be, we should be happy about, Michael, and not give up hope. Well, that's all we've got for you this evening. Thank you for joining the Biz News team for this Power Hour. We'll be back again on Thursday. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.